guardilla del poeta es Word, la pesadilla del poeta es Word, el paraíso del poeta es Word, el compromiso del poeta es Word, Word. Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts, a non-profit organization dedicated to challenging and expanding conceptions of human possibility and the home of Station Hill Press. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network and our cover art and theme music is by Havana poet Omar Perez, the author of Cubanology. We're live on Pacifica Radio Network and available on any and all, including your favorite podcast venues. If you want to be in touch, including with any questions, insights, notices of gaffes or blunders, suggestions for future sessions, we are very open to those, as we are to donations to our enterprise. Please write or call us at Station Hill Press or email bc at stationhill.org. And there we go, there we go, there we go. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. And we're I, I'm sort of lost in the sea of love to the extent that I, I'm a little um, unclear about exactly where we left off. Although I believe that it was around, it was a conversation that followed on the proposition, you know, what was it as a toddler that caused you to want to speak? What was it that you wanted or? You know, and out of that, we talked about communication as a form of love, I guess, you know, kind of like communion thing. And um, hmm. so that's where we are, which is here wow. again to yeah. uh, dive in to the sea of love. Yeah, I do have something to say because it happened to me today. Oh. It's not directly about why does one say one's first word. But it was a kind of sign that came to me. It snowed a little bit today. I live in Phoenicia, New York, across the street from the Esopus Creek, pretty wide creek, maybe 90 feet across. And I went out in the snow to walk around. I looked at the creek, and there were two little ducks, I noticed, uh, together, swimming upstream. Uh, across the the creek from me and i thought two little ducks you know a little couple and perhaps they feel love for each other perhaps they're a monogamous married couple 
uh, in love. And then I thought, well, you know, am I just projecting human values onto ducks? Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe, maybe ducks have infinitely more capacity for love than, than humans do. And they are the ones that are true exemplars of love. And they sailed together slowly in the freezing water past the little mounds of snow on the rocks in the creek just wending their way didn't they didn't seem to be fishing just living their happily married life that was my uh, story of love for today well you're talking to the right guy but ornithology is my avocation is that right no no it's not it's a line from Al- alfred hitchcock the birds but uh <laughs> What do you mean? There's like a uh, ornithologist who appears? Yeah, there is a woman who claims that ornithology is her avocation, who then, <laughs> who then proceeds to get pecked to death. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But uh, I do, I do actually know that uh, monogamy, um, pairing for life, is uh, fairly common in geese and swans, hmm. but ducks um, do not. Uh, form long-term pair bonds, but uh, instead they form seasonal bonds. And what it's bonds? Seasonal bonds. It's oh. referred to as seasonal monogamy, <laughs> in which uh, new bonds are formed each season. Huh. I never heard of seasonal monogamy. What a lovely idea. Which can be love, for sure. Not mutually uh-huh. What you yeah, saying. there are many paths, many streams, many bends in the river, and so on and so forth. But one thing I have to say, though, Sparrow, is they really shouldn't be here now. I right, feel. I had that thought, too. Yeah, because yeah, it'll be five degrees um, tonight. I hope they find some warm place where they can uh, ride it out. Well, my wife is also an ornithologist by avocation. Uh, a few weeks ago, she was sitting on the couch in our living room, and she said to me, is that a bald eagle? She was looking across the street at the uh, at a tree that was next to the creek, and sure enough, in the tree was a bald eagle on a you know, wintry tree with no leaves, just sitting there looking down. And I went out so I could be, you know, really in the same air as the as the eagle looked up at it, our national symbol. So she's she said to me that the she said, was it a merganser or a some other kind of duck? Now I've already forgotten. And she said, mergansers uh, migrate, but this the kind of duck I saw doesn't migrate. That's what she said. Oh, jeepers. Yeah. Well, that's good news for the ducks. Um, <laughs> yeah. I saw that movie, The uh, the Tragedy of Macbeth. I don't know if you saw it. No, I saw, the, I saw it through the first appearance of Bewitch. Not... That's just the beginning, right? Yeah, I just saw the first, the first maybe fifteen minutes. Oh, okay. Because it's a little reminiscent of the birds. I think that uh, the whichever Cone brother it was who made the movie 
was thinking of the birds because there's even in the part you saw there's a motif of crows that appear turn into the witches and i don't want to give away the movie but the crows reappear and they have a little bit of that hitchcockian malevolence plus the movie is uh in black and white the birds was in black and white, right uh no it's in color it yeah. was in color yeah huh. in color right that's interesting it's the kind of movie you remember as if it were in black and white one thing that had come up with me regarding the eagle and the, uh, I guess the infatuation which people have with like national identification and, um, mm. you know, like being a, a American, um, you know, it's, it's very much I was thinking about voting in relation to Sturge the Greek form that we've talked about. I was thinking this whole thing uh, around voting and voting as a form of ritual. This crackling is unbelievable. I think it's my fault, is it? Or it's maybe it. Spectrum's fault. You know that voting is a form of um, ritual and that, you know, right now we have a messed up country because we have a messed up ritual system in regard to voting. Mm. Love of uh, democracy. Yeah. Withholding That's, of vote. Um, yeah, it's a good point. We have I love a dysfunction vote, in that aspect of our state. Yeah. I don't know if I ever said this here. Like one of my earliest memories... My earliest political memory is I went with my dad. My dad went to vote for John F. Kennedy. And on the desk of the like voting official was a little mock voting machine with the little levers that you pull. And uh, so to, to uh, you know, uh, familiarize you with how to vote in case you never did it before. So. The guy in behind the desk, he let me pull the lever. So I, I voted metaphysically for John F. Kennedy at the age of uh, seven. So that's yeah, only one of my first memories. Kind of like magical feeling that I, I pulled the lever. I made the vote. I did the ritual. You know, like what you're talking about, Sam. I'm, yeah. I'm a big believer of that uh, voting uh, mysticism. <laughs> do, you vote, uh -huh. do you vote for county elections? And yeah, I vote for everything. I mean, you know, once in a while I miss something because I don't hear about it, but my wife is very informed. So usually I I even vote when I have no idea what I'm voting for. Like, uh, you know, I try to get some word from my wife or some expert on my way to the voting, you know, for um, what do you call school board elections where there's no. Um, uh, parties, so you, you know it's hard to know whom to vote for. Normally, I just vote Democrat, but then I'll like creatively vote for the Working Families Party if that's an option. Right. Sometimes, like we're in my little town, like or maybe everywhere, someone's on every ticket. You know, they're on you know the whatever you call it, Democrat, Republican, conservative. Uh, right, like they families. flood the column. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And lately, I've started voting occasionally for a Republican 
when it, they're on every column anyway. <laughs> Just to see what it's like, you know, see how it feels to vote Republican. It's a little transgressive, feels to me. Well, Sam, what did, what did you learn about love in the symposium? You you were mentioning before we recorded that you've been reading. Well, I don't know. You see, I, I couldn't, I wasn't able to complete my aggregation of memory plus like pluck, you know, just um, searching around. Um, you know, I believe in the symposium, there's discourse on the nature of uh, love as it is related to beauty and mm. that love as we know it is a recognition of beauty at different mm. thresholds. Mm. Um, and it's also intertwined with making, um, you know, with craft, uh, mm. love of craft, of beauty through um, you know, not only these sort of common crafts of like making a chair or a table or an, yeah, um, you know, but also artistic craft of, you know, of your relationship with, um, making art, really. And then there's, um, the love of the statesman. I hope I'm not missing one. There's the love of uh, country and of serving the state. And then there's, you know, the highest form is direct intercourse. I always thought with the nature of the good, hmm. Plato's sense of the nature of the good, which we should talk about maybe. But um, is it, I've also now gleaned that it had something to do with Interacting with the, with the nature, uh, with the form of beauty, with the divine mm -hmm. form of beauty, you know, something like 1.64 by one as being this sort of ratio, say, or, you know, I'm not exactly certain how Plato quite locates. Certainly geometry would be one place to look. But I always thought it was direct intercourse with the nature of the good. I can get into that. You know, I can understand that. Mm. I can understand intercourse, and then I can understand that, you know. I can have a an experience of that. Mm. Now, in the um, symposium, isn't there a famous priestess by the name Di of... Diotima. Diotima. Yeah. She was a sex worker oh. whom Socrates befriended and I think spent time, as I recall. And she, according uh, to Socrates, Socrates says in the um, symposium that Diotima, um, in his youth, taught him that she was his yes. when he was when he was a child or maybe an adolescent. Taught him about well, erotic love or... Or higher love. I'm not sure the transmission. I thought he would have been older than an adolescent. Right. Andrew. So whatever that means. Yeah. It's in his youth. So I, I don't know if that's his young adulthood or when he was, hmm. when he was younger. At the time of the symposium, I think Plato is what? About 60? Or I, I know he's around 60 at the time of the um, 
Cedrus. So he's, you know, around 60 probably in the symposium, mm. I would imagine. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had the sense that he was in his mature, you know, majority or, you know, that he was um, post-pubescent. In um, Diotima's teaching, if my, because I took this course in graduate school at Harvard Divinity School called Eros Crucified. I mentioned it last podcast. Mm. Eros Crucified, a Christian symposium on desire. And we read the symposium <laughs> and the Phaedrus in that course. And I remember that Diotima, she, her perspective, if my memory serves correct, is that, that love drives the individual to seek beauty. But first it's through like... Um, Earthly beauty, attraction to uh, beautiful bodies, for example. And then as one um, matures, I guess, the love mm. um, grows in wisdom. Mm. Beauty that's sought at that point is um, you know, of a spiritual nature, uh, mm. beautiful souls. And the most correct use of love or of other, of other human beings is direct one's mind, as you mentioned, Sam, to uh, the love of wisdom or philosophy. That's the that's the uh, the highest end. Hmm. I I believe that 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 does correspond with what I recall, but I think Diotima also she has a far more categorical sense. I don't have a distinct recollection. It's been many years since I've read the symposium, although I remember liking it quite a bit and. It certainly mm-hmm. comes up in various books I've read. Mm-hmm. And Alcibiades comes up, and Alcibiades' love of Socrates. Oh, right. Yeah. Alcibiades, he died in 304. Oh, man, my dates are a little, I think, 304 BC. Um, you know, he was assassinated, after all. Who is he, Alcibiades? He was a Athenian citizen who went into, you know, like military service and rose very quickly in the ranks. He was a sort of brilliant general, but he was also fluid in in terms of his allegiances and, uh, you know, a very flamboyant guy who you know, wound up on the wrong side of the law. It's an Mm. old story. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But but he was a terrific, you know, he was exiled from Athens. He was setting sail with a fleet, which he was commanding, I think commanding, and he got super drunk. And (laughs) he, at night, in the dead of night, went around with a bunch of people and knocked the, all the penises off all the statues that they came across, you know, in this kind of drunken spree. Huh. And for that, he was, you know, he was uh, exiled. Um, huh. But he was also leaving the next morning, you know, with the Navy, um, you know, which led to him, you know, that, that was his big deviation. That's but the he difference was a student of Socrates, and, and it's pres- pres- uh, presumed that he was the lover of Socrates. Mm. The, uh, that's the difference between the Greeks and the Victorians. The Victorians, the state knocked the penises off the uh, statues, 
And if you didn't knock the statues, the penises off the statues, you'd be uh, in prison. But um, the Greeks uh, had a more positive view of penises, it seems to me. Uh-huh. Hmm. Well, it's yeah. all part of the, you know, love geometry, I guess. So, um, you know, since we're sort of lingering in the ancient world, I did have something that I found that I thought would be useful in another perspective on the nature of love. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that is from Catullus. Oh. Um, you know, his uh, poem in which he speaks of love, but also speaks of that which is commonly assumed to be its opposite, uh, which is hate. You know, which is another face of the void. But, you know, it's the state of hate. And um, I don't know, you guys must know this poem, the Odi et Amo. You know, I this is, and this is the translation that I found um, according to the Google Translate algorithm <laughs> um, that I put in. And this is the translation. I hate and I love. You may ask why I do it. I do not know, but I feel it happening, and I am tortured. You heard it first. That's so it? that was Catullus through the language algorithm. Yeah. That's great. I mean, you know, usually you would translate that last line, and it hurts, or... You know, but I am tortured. It's a reflexive. Hmm. Yeah. Sam, could you read it one more time? Sure. I hate and I love. You may ask why I do it. I do not know, but I feel it happening and I am tortured. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's, it really is striking um, how love in in certain cases can slip into a hate transmutate into a um, a darker version of itself i've noticed yeah it's uh, i think that's kind of what freud was a big point that, that freud was making right is that hate and love are kind of uh united really you kind of can't have one without the other i would say and, right he said uh the Athanatos and Eros are alloyed. They're, they're, you know, they're uh, interpenetrate. They exist where they can't be divided. And he talks a lot about ambivalence, which I, it's a little unclear to me what he means, but he seems to be saying that something like the state of hum, human life is one of ambivalence. And I, mm. I, that may be part of what he means or all of what he means, that you love someone and then you find yourself hating them. And um, and let alone you love yourself and hate yourself. I mean, that might be where it all starts. And uh, that's uh, the, our fate as human beings. You can pretend, you know, on Mother's Day, you pretend you only have positive feelings for your mother. Father's Day for your father. Christmas, you pretend you love everybody. Everybody is depressed at Christmas time because they have to pretend that they are filled with brotherly Christian love, sisterly Christian love for everyone. But the fact is, the more you try to love, the more you 
you encounter the opposite. Uh huh. Well, it's interesting also, and in that kind of setting, you can feel that, that we find ourselves at times the victim of our own feelings. Hmm. Like Catullus is saying. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wonderfully modern. That's the thing about Catullus is you sort of feel like he, uh, he could have been like living next door to Gregory Corso. Somehow he, feels more like a beat poet to me than exactly like a contemporary 2022 poet. Mm-hmm. But but he feels very close to our time. I think at the same time, he would have gotten on well with Baudelaire. Actually. Oh, yeah. They have a similar taste, yeah. I wonder if Baudelaire guess, read him. Yeah. And I guess also it has to do with extremes. Like, hmm. you know, how I love, I hate and I love. Well, usually you sort of, you know, um, feel warmly or feel warmly disposed. I mean, I have, I mean, there are different forms of love. I have a very strong sense of communal love and of loving everybody. But of the kind of love that Catullus is sort of pointing toward, you know, that's a very specific um, intensity, Mm. I think. Mm. And I think Mm. the uh, simplicity of the poem and for really confronting the nature of love and hate, um, I think one has to do it in the terms of this poem in its sort of most naked form. You know Really well put, Sam. It, it reminds me of um, a quotation from a late Oscar Wilde poem oh. that that he wrote after he served um, hard labor for what two two or three years. Redding um, Ghoul. Yeah. Jail. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the Ballad of Redding Jail, and it's a very famous um, quotation, uh, and it goes, "Yet each man kills the thing he loves. By each, let this be heard." Some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword. Written, yes. I, I believe, in the very end of the 19th century, I think 1897 or something. You don't know the name of that poem? Oh, The Ballad of Reading Jail. Oh, that is The Ballad of Reading yeah. Jail. Oh, okay. That's the ending, right? Toward the end. Each man kills the thing he loves, by each let this be heard. It's so, great, it's a... It's, uh, and it's it's funny because he is sort of known for his witty, cruel insults, especially in the plays. I mean, he was a king of of killing the thing he loved, and then he, you know, threw whatever. Really, his own hubris. I saw this play. I don't know if I ever told you about this. This play called "The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde," that goes through the whole tragic story of how he ended up in prison. He sues his boyfriend's father for libel for calling him a bugger. And as a result of that, he ends up in prison. So if you know, Oscar Wilde started it, if he just let all well enough alone, he would have been okay. But he was kind of karmically drawn to destroy himself and to learn this horrible lesson that you just described, that being cruel, even though it's very funny, is um, 
is a sort of a sin in a way. <laughs> At the same time, I'm not sure that it's true mm. that each man kills the thing he loves. You know, each man, each person, each of us kill what we love most. Mm. Each of us kill what we love most. I'm not sure about that. But I do I do agree, man. You know, it, it, there is um, the threat of that. And I think one does need to be cautious. I mean, I th- you know, I write a lot of proverbs. I mean, I'm, I don't know if any of them are any good. but um, And I think the thing about a proverb is it has to sound right more than be true. And each man kills the thing he loves. It sounds right. It sounds true. But it's true when you think about it. It doesn't seem uh, universal. Jimmy Carter didn't seem to kill the thing he loved, unless you count his presidency. <laughs> a good one. <laughs> but uh, that yeah, was a good one. That was kind of like a, almost a uh, aphorism, or you know, yeah, yeah, say a stand-up yeah. comedy joke. I didn't. I didn't know what I was going to say. I didn't intend to say it, but uh, it just sort of came out. But like Mao, Chairman Mao, did he kill the thing he loved? Well, the more you think of it, the more it wow. does seem sort of true. Karl Marx. I mean, I, I know from personal experience in in marriage, I, I can feel really good and that love is in the air, and then shift into anger, and it's it. It, it, it happened so swiftly. The Catal- doesn't Catullus mention that that he's confusing? He doesn't quite understand the alchemy between the two, love mm-hmm. and, and hate. Um, there is something there. I mean, it um, causes me to recall Socrates. Um, you know, in the last days of Socrates, you know, and his, um, you know, prior to drinking hemlock. There are a series of um, are there a series of books? The Last Days of Socrates are three different. Um, I guess one of them is Socrates's fair. Oh, God, I don't remember. Anyway, the trial. There, right? the trial is one of them. I think. Yeah, the trial is one of them. Yeah, I just don't remember the. Ex- um, anyway. At one point, the he has his shackles taken off because I guess he's about to drink the hemlock. And he, you know, the shackles have been bothering him, you know, um, abrading his ankles. And so having them off is like, oh, it feels good. And he's massaging his ankles. And he makes the observation that pain and pleasure are a two-headed beast. Hmm in so many words and that they're part of the same structure Mm. um you know that they're part of the same energy pleasure Mm. and pain so i wonder if there's an analogous you know if one can say that love and hate have the same uh taste yeah i guess i find myself thinking you know that we've been discussing now for three sessions maybe love and we've never defined love and it seems like we are uh i mean i've had the thought that there are thousands of types of love that the problem with the word love or the problem with the language 
at least the English language, but I fear every language, that um, that they use the same word like, uh, I love collecting postage stamps. You know, I love my grandmother. I love my wife. I love I love porn. You know, I love God. We use the same word for all these extremely distinct experiences. And I think that, you know, mostly what we're talking about, what we keep coming back to is some kind of romantic love. And certainly romantic love, uh, as far as I have experienced it, if I have experienced it, you know, has definitely has that dualistic quality that you're talking about, Sam, that it, it's that the love and the hate are kind of inseparable. But there might be some other kind of love, some divine love, or even um, the love of philology, the love of philosophy, love of studying Socrates. Does that turn into hate? Not necessarily, I think. I think you can study your whole life. Um, you know, the uh, writings of Leonard Cohen, and and it won't turn into hate. Not the same way that romantic love, suddenly you wake up the next morning and it's like, ah, who is this person? Who is this stranger I'm sitting next to? <laughs> you know, it's some kind of sickness that's connected to romantic love in particular, but not so much to the love of stamp collecting. You know, most people... Don't suddenly turn on stamp collecting. Ah, I'm going to burn my stamps. They suck, you know. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more, Sparrow. Yeah, oh, really? I, yeah. Oh, totally. Oh, my God. Infinite um, loves. I mean, I, I um, dare I say, um, you know, in my most misty-eyed moments, I feel that love is all there is. Mm-hmm. As Bob Dylan you know. says. Yeah, in um, this is on Nashville skyline. Yes, I threw it all away. Threw it all away. Yeah. Love is all there is. It makes the world go round. Love and only love. It can't be denied. Once you, what is it? You just won't be able to do without it. Take a tip from one who tried. (laughs) So it's a kind of contradictory lyric. He's saying there's only love. Once you know everything about it, you won't be able to do without it. Something like that. But then he says he tried to live without love, and I guess he failed. Dylan's very flip. Very flip. <laughs> yeah. Your, your point about um, the univocality, I guess that's the word, of, of love, the fact that there's only, yeah, the word is too narrow. We use it in all these different ways. That struck me quite a bit. What about love for one's friends? I guess philia. Yeah. Uh, that can be a, a very deep, powerful form of attraction. Um, and when it, when it goes south, if it, the friendship ends or some sort of, um, break, there isn't a heck of a lot of language, um, to make sense mm-hmm. of that as there yeah. is in maybe a romantic love where there's a, a lexicon of poetics of the breakup and the recovery. And, um, there's just, there isn't that in English, at least there's not an equivalent when it comes to, um, philia or, or a literature either. Like there aren't many books about it. Yeah. I guess one book that comes to mind, I suppose would be on the road. Huh? Right. Sal paradise. And 
and uh, Dean Moriarty's that relationship buttresses um, the book, and then there's a break at the end, right? Dean, mm. they disappear into later chapters of their lives as Dean rounds that corner in a, a moth-eaten overcoat he bought for the freezing temperatures of the Northeast. Uh huh. Where are they? They're in San Francisco. At that point, they're in New York City, I believe. Oh, really? That's where the book ends. I thought the book ends in Mexico. Um, well, uh, Sal Paradise is left in Mexico with a fever by um, the Neil Cassidy character, Dean Moriarty, and it's heartbreaking to him that his his best friend, you know, his soul brother, the friend of his mind. Um, abandons him, huh. sick in Mexico City. But the, the very end of the novel um, occurs in New York City. I think it's around uh, 42nd Street. And then there's that famous image of the long skies over New Jersey. And he remembers all, I mean, he thinks of all the land rolling and the immensity of it. I'm paraphrasing. Uh-huh. Huh. And so it is kind of about this. It We're, ends with this feeling, this longing feeling of, of friendship broken. Yeah, yeah that's right. Huh. And Pooh Bear. Yeah, that's right. Good memory. God is Pooh Bear. Don't you know God is Pooh Bear? Really? Yeah. That's right at the end, he says that. It's the final paragraph of On the Road. Huh. My God. Well, I haven't read it recently. It's interesting. I don't. I never th thought of it as a book about uh, friendship, I must say. Bromance, I guess it's called these days. Bromance, yeah. Did they sleep together, I think? Maybe they did. I think yeah. all three of them with Ginsburg, um, they did sleep together, you know, in some configurations. Yeah. I think maybe Ginsburg slept with each of them separately. So it was a little. Yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah, more literal right. than a more. What's the word? Explicitly erotic than most friendships. Most American friendships anyway. Do your friendships approximate a love relationship? It's funny. I was just thinking, I told this very close friend of mine years ago, I said, you know, I think like I'm gay or something and I have like a homoerotic relationship with every one of my male friends. And and we used to always like uh, end our conversations by saying like, I love you. And and after I said that to him, he never said I love you again. <laughs> and I think maybe I was pushing him away unconsciously. I feel bad about it. I mean, I, I think that there I, I can't decide. I mean, I had this sort of mentor when I lived in the East Village. I can't remember his name. He was an older guy who I maybe met on the street, like a very kind hearted, kind of deeply spiritual guy who probably worked as a legal proofreader, because like the average person I knew worked as a legal proofreader. And uh, and one time, and I would use the word faggot a lot uh, talking to him. And, you know, this guy was so compassionate. He understood that it wasn't that I hated gay people, or maybe I do hate gay people, but basically it was just that I was tormented by this anxiety that I was gay. And and he didn't re mention that. He just said to me, he said, you know, I have lived my whole life trying to figure out whether or not I'm gay. And I never figured it out. <laughs> he never figured out what his sexuality was. And I and I 
I was very impressed and kind of transformed by that, that you could live your whole life and never figure out these mysteries, the mystery of sexuality. And so, you know, when you ask me, like, how much or how erotic are my male relationships, I honestly say I don't know. I They seem to me very erotic. On the other hand, they seem not erotic. You know, I can't figure it out. I think they're more erotic than I want to admit to myself, that's for sure. And certainly more erotic than my friends want to admit to me because they are, you know, my friends are basically very heterosexual, you know, guys that don't want to think that they're secretly bisexual. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, thanks, Sparrow. I mean, I uh I've always had sort of like a fairly normative, conventional, heterosexual attitude or, you know, I've never really deviated from that. Um, And I've never really been that much in like doubt. I'm sort of thankful, I guess, you know, that and I guess that I haven't been so confused about it. As I think, you know, that would probably be very time-consuming, maybe. <laughs> For me, it doesn't take much time to be confused uh-huh. about it. It's not like something I spend a lot of time on. You know, I felt a um, strong, strong pull to male friends um, with a courtship of sorts and a relationship, and sometimes a break, lots of freezing, freezing over. But I think it, for me personally, it has to do with the fact that I was close with my brother as a young child. And then um, I feel like he rejected me because my parents favored me on some level. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I've spent my life trying to find him in male friends. Oh, yeah. Mm, to reclaim that um, closeness that I barely remember, but I, I know for a fact on some cellular level was there. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds very true. It's very whatever vulnerable mm. of you to admit. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I was doing a therapy years ago. I was seeing this therapist named Sarah Hardesty, and I, therapy's been an interesting thing for me, but it's never something that, like, evokes tears. I never felt like I had a real breakthrough or, you know, like mm. pulled something out of the subconscious you know, it's useful. I can maybe um, hear myself say things that have a therapeutic benefit. But I started talking about this um, topic rather spontaneously, and I was just weeping. Really? And ah. I was shocked and mm-hmm. embarrassed and really disequilibriated. It was uh, remarkable. And was ah. it a transformative experience, do you think? Um, in some ways, yeah. I don't. I never know if those discoveries translate to life outside of the therapist's office. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I just it, it confirmed that there was a real salience there. That there was unconscious. It was loaded unconsciously, but yeah. um, no other point. I mean, I feel it a lot with my sister. That uh, I mean, I'm worried she's listening to this, although I don't think she knows it exists. You know, she is very bitter that I beat her as a kid, which I guess I did. I don't remember vividly. And, you know, plus she became kind of a suburban normal person and I became a weirdo. And, 
So, I mean, there's a lot of tension between us. And, oh, and then the weird thing is we lived in the same room uh, until I was 15 and she was 13. And then, and neither of us has ever lived alone our whole lives. We were discussing this the other day. And she married someone two years older than her, and I married someone two years younger than me. So we like replicated, kind of like what you're talking about, uh, Andrew. That's why I bring it up. The way you're seeking that relationship with your brother, we're kind of, and we live in the same room with the, with these substitutes for each other. You know, uh-huh. there's a kind of mirroring that yeah. you and your sister have done. Interesting. Yeah, that we're that we're both trying to sort of heal that relationship. Uh, unconsciously by marrying someone who has the same chronology as our sibling. Huh. I mean, for me, I would think that the absence and death of my father would play a strong role in the kind of relationships I form. And I don't know if that's true. I don't, I'm not certain in terms of my selection of friends, that that particularly plays a hand. Although I do tend to maybe look up to my friends, you know. I feel grateful Mm. to have any friends at all. (laughs) And, you know, I consider my friends all to be in their own ways quite extraordinary you know like interesting people i guess so everybody's interesting if you get to know them yeah you work for george guasha who's considerably older than you and kind of a father figure i would say oh that's an interesting observation we don't have much contact over you know for some years but Mm -hmm. definitely i feel that i feel some of that spirit for sure sparrow thank you and giant chucks there yeah the stages of fairy town yeah ben lafarge don't forget ben lafarge lives down the street too just down the way yeah fairy town is a hotbed of um some advanced thinkers sages uh, sages and beers yeah for sure sparrow do you know ben lafarge i don't know him i can't they, I don't think I know him. Probably in his 80s at this point. Um, he was a long-time professor of English at Bard. Oh. One of you the, studied with him? I, no, but I, you know, I went into his office a few times, and I lived in Barrytown, so we used to walk occasionally together. Oh, really? Yeah, when I was a senior in uh, Bard, he was probably in his 60s at that point. Huh. Yeah, I, enjoy, I, I enjoyed his company. I thought he, was, um, he had a gentleman-like quality. Is he sort of avant-garde, like uh, oh. like Quasha and Chuck? Just the opposite. Kind of a formalist, a traditionalist. Um, you know, came from a blue-blood American family, the Lafarges. Um, conservative, I would say, as a poet and as a scholar. Like culturally conservative, maybe right. not. Culturally conservative. Right-winger, yeah. Politically, I'm guessing, you know, middle of the road or... Um, liberal. Liberal. No. liberal. Yeah, Ben's very liberal, yeah. I, I but, like, but what is, what's his study? What does he know about? He's a Shakespearean or something. He um, got his start. Uh, he, you know, he's one of the um, few professors there in the English department, at least, who only had a bachelor's degree. Huh. Um, he was hired by Bard in the 60s, I think, before Leon came. 
He was hired by Reamer Klein. And he taught um, classes. He had a well-known class called um, Lyrical Modes. He taught um, formal poetry. Mm. And he taught some courses on D.H. Lawrence. Uh, my memory seems to suggest, and um, that's all I'm really remembering, but hmm. a lot of British poetry. D.H. Lawrence is not so conservative. No. I'd say to me, you know, he's still, I somewhere found like his collected poems on a stoop in Brooklyn, and I look around at him sometimes, and uh, he's still kind of a radical feel to his poetry, especially his poetry. I like his poetry. One thing I'll say about Ben Lafarge to kind of loop back to our um, topic of love is mm. that uh, I know uh, Ben Lafarge had maybe he was married. Um, and, yeah, he was married to Elizabeth Lafarge. Maybe he had second wife, too. And he's had girlfriends, a very handsome guy. But w- when I sort of knew him, he lived alone. And I've always been um, impressed by men in particular. Uh, women seem to have an easier time. But men of a certain age who are bachelors. Hmm. who um, exist in the world alone and maybe without so much love. And uh, I just don't think that I have the confidence or strength to do that. <laughs> That's why you're married. Yeah. yeah I, you, know, you lack the uh, the real courage to be a bachelor. I think so. Yeah. I, I think mean, for me, a lot of it is uh, economic. I'm so poor. I've always been poor. So I, I always had roommates. And uh, so I have to have a wife or a roommate. There's, I can't afford, and I don't like living alone. I get scared of ghosts and murderers. Those, you know, various demons. Uh, if I'm, a, even though, you know, my wife goes away for nights to stay with her mother or something, and I'm like, I can, I can almost see some kind of pirate appearing or one of these local guys i don't want to give them any ideas with their shotguns and found out that i'm a socialist decided to come and blow my brains out <laughs> so sparrow do you think if, uh, if you were forced to live alone do you think you'd crack up i i don't know i would uh, tend to think that i wouldn't i mean i haven't cracked up yet you know unless you ca- count an occasional uh, you know, a nervous breakdown. I think that I would somehow manage, although I'm stammering as I say it. Maybe I would crack up. <laughs> you know, I don't know. How many nervous breakdowns have you had in your life? I would say two. I would, I would. what's the word? Estimate two. You described one uh, when your daughter was small. You said before you moved out of the city, you just you, when you were becoming famous, I, I don't know, you described a period of time where you felt you were having a nervous break. But maybe, maybe you didn't describe it as a nervous breakdown. Maybe that's my projection. Yeah, I don't remember Yeah, that's that, not my yeah. recollection. Okay. A nervous breakdown. And yes, Sam listens to these stories over and over. I mean, if you want to know nervous all my nervous breakdowns. Nervous breakdowns are, the, uh, are sort of these schisms. Mm-hmm. Or these kinds of uh, fracture lines uh, between I love and I hate, where there's mm-hmm. some short circuit that occurs, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if I've had a full-fledged nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had to pull over, you know, Sometimes the tire goes out, um, but I don't know if I've like ever totally broken down. Had to call AA, you mean? 
AA or yeah, tri yeah, triple I. Yeah, that's right. Or AA or triple A, depending on the type of breakdown. Right. Yeah. Those are the those are the through two gateways. I do. Can I say one more thing about love? Yeah. I've been writing about this in my collaboration with my psychologist friend, Sean Ackerman. Um, I mentioned it before, but we have this um, ongoing epistolary uh, relationship where we um, pose a question, one of us answers it, and then based upon that answer, that person poses another question, and it continues on in perpetuity, and we have almost 2,200 pages now. <laughs> um, a lot of text. But the, what I've been writing about recently is the phenomenon in my life and I think it has to do with love. And that's times when I've, um, I guess I'm struggling with something. And it's pre-verbal. Like I haven't worked it into language. But it's simmering beneath the surface emotionally. Um, maybe there are physical symptoms too. Uh, and I keep it all uh, bottled up. Uh, and I'm able to be pretty functional on the surface level. Um, going through my days it reminds me of Emily Dickinson's poem after great pain a formal feeling comes where she describes quartz contentment and, and walking what, what is it quartz contentment contentment like a stony contentment or she also described oh. the same poem walking a wooden way wow. um, the, the imagery in that poem in particular is uh, very powerful but uh, my point is not that my point is that um, ever since I was a small child, um, when I get into this place, I'll eventually seek out someone um, to whom I can confess or uh. to whom I can speak. And at first it was my parents, and then later on it was uh, you know teachers and maybe a, a romantic partner, a friend. And I feel that I've really benefited uh, psychosocially and spiritually from from people who have sat down and. Um, you know, allowed me to speak and have witnessed my language, and you know, they haven't solved the problem, but just that attention and that, that presence has been, um, I think, an expression of love um, mm. that that I feel uh, has primed me in my own just as a teacher to do similar uh, to uh, students who come to me in various states of need and trouble. Mm. Um, and it's a real profound – I don't quite have language for it, but it has very much to do with love, and it's profoundly healing. Yeah. And, the, and these are sort of – you're having some kind of crisis, interior crisis that you can't – not quite a nervous breakdown, but because you're not breaking down. You're functioning, but you're – there's something eating you kind of inside that you can't quite name. Exactly, and it leads to estrangement. You know, the theologian Paul Tillich wrote about sin in this um, well-known book, um, Shaking the Foundations of Christianity. He mm -hmm. said, you know what sin is? Sin is estrangement. It's estrangement from yourself, it's estrangement from others, and it's estrangement from the ground of being. Huh. So I'm in this um, place, I feel pretty estranged. And mm. when I find someone, when someone receives me, I, you know, it's almost like a um, instance of grace, and it can yeah. be extraordinarily um, integrating, I suppose. Um, just a minute or two minutes, and I, I think it's, I don't know, I just think it's like necessary for my survival. Uh -huh. So if we, if um, we can talk about it. 
formally, what you're saying is that there's a certain kind of issue that you're trying to work out in yourself. It manifests physically, psychologically. There's some disorientation and, you know, what you call estrangement. And then there's an experience of speech. It's not writing so much, but it's the act of speech in which you speak of this kind of burden. And in putting it into words, you're able to excise it or you're able to articulate it in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise without that. And it's to another person. Yes, and I'm able to see it or hear it, and uh, ideally to like absorb it into myself in a way that I couldn't pre- before that. But there needs to be the other present, and I've just benefited from having people who have been willing to 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 give me that. It has made all the difference. So. And the way I'm thinking of it is, I, I had this. I guess the last therapist I had, really, my one main therapist, Rita Wolfarth. She would always use the term recognition. She seemed to be saying that what I was searching for kind of eternally was recognition, which is someone just caring about me and understanding me, kind of looking me in the eyes and accepting what I had to say. It's not so much, that's the way I'm seeing it, what you're saying, Andrew. It's not so much about the, what's the word, rational process of articulating your feelings it's more this sense that there's a person there that recognizes you that like, like recognition, I think is like you're born, you're a baby. It's a little bit like that Eric Erickson stuff you were talking about. Your mother looks yeah, in I your mean, eyes and sees that you're a human being and you see that she's a human being. You recognize each other. That's my understanding of what recognition is. I think that probably it just as profoundly falls to listening. Mm. That the person is listening more even than the speech, that the the sort of tender tissue of it is also in the fact of finding somebody who's truly receptive and open to your to in order to receive your speech and in order to listen in such a way that you're hearing back to yourself that which you were seeking. Yeah. And then there's the other piece is that I feel impelled after it happens to do similar to, for someone else. Like, oh, really? Yeah. Like it huh. moves back out into the world. Huh. That's very and, sweet. I always feel as if it's like something moving through people. It's not... I'm having a hard time explaining it. Yeah, yeah, like like it it it's a sort of social currency that needs to spread through the world. You, you can't just keep it to yourself. Sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And dare I say and dare I say it sounds as though it's tinged with love. I think yeah. it's and you know the the um the trope that's coming to mind is the laying on of hands. I feel like there's like huh a laying out of hands, a moment of healing, of touch, of, of listening, mm-hmm. presence, mm-hmm. recognition. Yeah. It's making me think that uh, I hope my wife never listens to this, which I think she never will. 
that in a way friendship is kind of a higher level than romantic love because the problem with romantic love is the two of you want this thing from each other. You're in this kind of transactional relationship where, you know, let's say she's a woman and you're a guy, like she wants you to love her. You want her to love you. So there's a lot of the sort of demands you're making on each other. It's unconscious. It's not spoken, you know, but it's kind of always there. And whereas a friend, it doesn't have that same kind of need. A friend can, you know, can go two weeks without seeing you, without hearing from you, and survive fine. So it's it's a different, it's more of a, what's the word? Uh, it's more generous. It's more causeless, in a way, the love of a friend. The friend, you know, is not doing it because he's thinking someday I'll want you to talk to me. He's just doing it because he cares, you know. It's, I don't know if I'm right about this, just a sudden thought I've had. Uh-huh. So that the friend doesn't have any kind of stake. That yeah. is, that, you know, you're going to get something back, like there's a call and response, you know, you're going to get, yeah. Whereas the friend, maybe that's part of it is just the capacity to listen without any return. Like it's expectation there. I mean, I feel yeah. like my friends, maybe it's a, maybe I'm naive, but I feel like my friends don't in general. That's why they're my friends. They don't really have much expectations of me. Maybe they know that how little I'm going to do for anybody, but uh, you know, it's just, that's one thing I like about friendship is that, it just seems like both of you are acting without self-interest. What do they call it? What does La Rochefoucauld uh, calls it? Something like l'amour propre, the self-love, self, self-wanting. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.